My name is David. I'm the pastor here at Stonebridge. Really glad that y'all have chosen to be with us this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to 2 Samuel 19. I don't know any major religion that does not believe that their God is powerful. I don't know any other one that says their God is good. And I want to take a minute and pray. I don't know if you take that for granted. If you can imagine an omnipotent and all-powerful God that you can't trust, where does that put you? Because God is good, we can trust him. Some of you are in a spot, can't figure the way out. Kind of a wilderness time. Your emotions are probably a little bit out of whack. You may have gotten a lot of advice. I don't know, maybe something that you're keeping very close. But for you to be able to say, I serve and I worship and I know, I know a God who is all powerful. I don't know that there's greater comfort than that. So God, I pray for any here in this room this morning. I feel like they're in the, just getting tossed and tossed around. I pray that regardless of what I say, I pray what they would hear from you is that you're trustworthy. You're all powerful. None can oppose you. And that you're all good. There's no shadow in you. There's no darkness in you. There's no evil or wickedness in you. There's no disinterest in you. God, I pray that in the next few minutes that you would minister into those who... Kind of the picture in my mind is you're in the dryer, reality and the truth. That you're all powerful and that you're all good in their life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one other reminder. We're doing this prayer challenge. Remember, through August 5th, we're trying to pray persistently and consistently. You don't have to pray every day. I'd love if you could pray three days a week um, for one or both of these things. Someone who you love, who needs Jesus, a situation in your life that seems a bit intractable and you want to see the Lord move in that situation. We'd love for you to be praying about those things and let us know how God works over the course of the next several weeks. If you need a stake in the ground, we pray here corporately from 6.30 to 7.30 on Tuesday morning. 6.30 to 7 is you just show up, it's quiet, you pray, and you can leave. Uh, It's come and go. And from 7 to 7.30, we pray corporately for the church and for the city. So that first 30 minutes may be a great window for you if you're looking to maybe uh, increase your level of prayer around that issue. We'd love to have you anytime between 6.30 and 7 on Tuesday. Okay, Second Samuel 19, let me remind you what we were doing or where we were. So um, David has been up in that red star called Mahanaim. That's a walled city. He's in exile from Jerusalem, which is that green star. That's the capital of Israel. He's been in exile because his son Absalom has led a revolt. Last week, Absalom got killed. He, there was a, a battle. David's guys trounced Absalom's guys, even though they were vastly outnumbered, and Absalom dies. And um, David didn't want that to happen. He told his commanders, be gentle with the young man, Absalom. But Joab, who's the commander of David's army, killed him anyway. Stabbed him three times in the heart and then 
cut him up with a sword. He was going to make sure he was dead. So Absalom's dead. David is the king, but he's not in Jerusalem. And so today we're going to talk about how does David move from, Jer- from Mahanaim. It's also, there's some internal things that are happening in the nation, and I think we'll be able to make some applications in our own life when we think about moving from one thing to the next. Just background, because it will be helpful. Sometimes when you read in the Old Testament the word Israel, it means all of the 12 tribes, and sometimes it just means the north, which is confusing. The context will tell you. Today when we see it, it just means the northern tribes. So Judah is considered the southern tribe, and Simeon is in Judah. So when you hear Judah, it's these two. And when we read Israel, it's everybody else. Gad, Benjamin, Dan, Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun, Asher, Naphtali. Those were all the sons of Jacob. And when you hear Israel this morning, think the northern 12 tribes. So for most of Israel's history, these tribes have functioned, we'll say, interdependently. They haven't had one leader. They've each had their own government, their own elders, maybe almost like a state here in the United States. So they've been independent. But when one of them needed maybe 60, 70 years that they've been united under a king. Saul was the first one. David's the second one. And so they've still got a lot of that tribal identity um, that's still strong in them. And that will come into play both today and next week. So there's some background. We'll start reading in verse 9 of chapter 19. Throughout the tribes of Israel, so those are those northern ten tribes, not everybody, all the people were arguing among themselves, saying the king, so that's David, David delivered us from the hands of our enemies. David's the one who rescued us from the hand of the Philistines. But now David's fled the country to escape from Absalom. And Absalom, whom we anointed to make to rule over us, has died in battle. So why do you say nothing about bringing David back? So that's the big question. What they're saying is, the reason our parents asked for a king in the first place is we needed somebody to fight the Philistines. David was undefeated. Never lost a battle. He was really good at that. He left Jerusalem. When Absalom approached, we, he fled. We, as a group, we anointed Absalom to be the king. But now he's dead, so they're kind of going, what are our choices? The guy who we backed is dead, but this other guy was pretty good. So let's bring him back. I don't know if they're doing that out of conviction or because there's nobody left. But they're saying, let's bring David back. And to me, the, the fact that they anointed Absalom king... That shows how widespread the revolt was against David. He did not have much support. It wasn't just that Absalom's best buddy said, hey, you're going to be the king. There was enough support for him in enough places in Israel that he was actually anointed. He was chosen by the people to be the king. God never made that choice, but the people did. And so the northern tribes, those northern ten tribes, they all said, okay, we're going to make David the king. We're going to bring him back. From that walled city, Mahanaim, we're going to bring him back to Jerusalem. So King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Asked the elders of Judah, so that's the southern tribe, why should y'all be the last to bring the king back to his palace, since what is being said throughout Israel has reached the king at his quarters? You're my relatives, my own flesh and blood, so why should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, are you not my own flesh and blood? May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you're not the commander of my army for life in place of Joab. David went over the hearts of all the men of Judah, so they were all of one mind, and they sent word to the king, return you and all your men. 
So the king returned and went as far as the Jordan. So David now has the support of those northern ten tribes. And so then he says, I need to get Judah on board. Which to me is it's interesting because David was born in Judah. He's from Bethlehem. You'll see that on the map there, that yellow, I think it's a yellow star or something. You'll see it there, uh, blue. So David was born in Bethlehem. So he was a Judahite. But those guys are slow in coming around. And so David says to two of his priests, Zadok and Abiathar, they're stationed in Jerusalem. He says, go to the guys in the south, go to the leaders and say, why are y'all being slow on the draw here? Y'all are my relatives. Make me the king. He's appealing to their tribal pride, which is going to come back and haunt him later, but it works now. And then he also says that I'm going to make Amasa, who's David's nephew, I'm going to make him the commander of my army. Joab had been the commander of the army. Joab killed Absalom. David didn't want that to happen. So in a passive-aggressive way, he demotes Joab without saying anything to him. And he promotes Amasa. And that also sets David has got this position, then nobody needs to worry. David's not going to, there's not going to be any retribution for anyone who fought against David. So it was a signal to everyone else. It's okay to kind of come out of the the shadows and support David. He's not going to punish you for supporting Absalom. And he wins all the people over. He wins their hearts over. And so now Judah says, hey, we're going to do this too. So now David's got the entire nation, the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes are all saying yes We want David to be the king. And so David, his family, the 3,000 soldiers who are with him, and and his attendants, they all go from that walled city, Mahanaim, and they go to that yellow star. That's Gilgal. That's where you cross the Jordan River. Jordan River is about 100 feet across. And so now there, when you're looking at it, they're all on the right side. And then there's a whole bunch of people on the left side waiting on David to come. To them, And that's what we'll see. In the, in the middle of all of this corporate action, there are these three one-on-one encounters that David has, and that's what's next in the story. So the men of Judah had come to Gilgal to go out and meet the king and to bring him across the Jordan. So they go to the Jordan to meet David. They're going to cross, get him, and then bring him back. Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite from Baharim, hurried with the men of Judah to meet King David. With him were a thousand Benjamites, along with Ziba, a steward of Saul's household, and his 15 sons and 20 servants. And they rushed to the Jordan where the king was. They crossed at the ford to take the king's household over and do whatever the king wished. When, when Shimei, the son of Gera, crossed the Jordan, he fell prostrate before the king and said, May my lord not hold me guilty. Don't remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. May the king put it out of his mind, for I, your servant, know that I've sinned, but today I've come here as the first from the tribes of Joseph, that is from the northern tribes, to come down and meet my lord the king. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said, Shouldn't Shimei be put to death for this? He cursed the Lord's anointed. David replied, What does this have to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What right do you have to interfere? Should any over Israel? So the king said to Shimei, You won't die, and the king promised him on oath. So this has been several weeks, maybe a couple of months, that David left Jerusalem when he was fleeing from Absalom. And as he was leaving, this guy Shimei was standing up on a ridge and was pelting him with dirt and with rocks and with curses. And one of the, this is what he was saying. Get out, you murderer, you scoundrel. The Lord's repaid you for all the blood you've shed in the household of Saul. The Lord has given the kingdom into the hands of your son. You've come to ruin Because you're a murderer. And so he's cursing David from this ridge. just yelling down at him. Throwing rocks at him. Kicking dirt on him. And this guy Abishai says he can't cut his head off. And this is why you can't cut his head off. 
If he's cursing because the Lord said, curse David, who can say, why are you doing this? Maybe God is inspiring him to curse me. For all I know, God's done with me. That's one of the reasons David left Jerusalem. He didn't know. God may have been finished with him. God may have decided your time as king is up and I'm going to give the throne to your son. And so David just leaves. And what he's saying to this Abishai, he wants to cut Shimei's head off, it could very well be that God is inspiring him to say all of this stuff. Leave him alone. Let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. It may be that the Lord will look upon my misery and restore to me his covenant blessing instead of his curse. And so now you can imagine, put yourself in his position. You're throwing rocks at the king. You're kicking dirt on the king. You're calling the king a scoundrel. You're saying you're a murderer. God's done with you. Now the king wins. And so he's coming back. And so Shimmy's wondering, what does this mean for me? And so he takes a thousand of people from his tribe and he runs down to the Jordan River and he gets to David trying to be the first one there and say, hey, I was the first one to bring you back. You can imagine his motivation there. Probably not a lot of sincerity. He's just trying to not get killed. And so he says to David, I need you to forgive me for what I did. I was wrong. I sinned. And Abishai says, can I kill him now? And David says, no, you can't kill him now. You couldn't kill him the first time because I didn't know if God was in it. And you can't kill him this time because now I know I'm the king. God took his curse and turned it into a blessing And today's a day of celebration, so nobody's going to die today. And so if you want to see David in the best light, you can say that is merciful, that is gracious of him. Maybe we'll say merciful even, withholding punishment that shimmies do. That's very may. David is looking for support from any place that he can get it, and shimmy is really shrewd. And so he shows up with a thousand men to say, look, I can bring people to the table. You You need support, I can provide it. And so maybe at that point when David doesn't know who's with him and who's not, he's trying to make sure all of his ducks are lined up in a row. He doesn't want to tick anybody off. And he says, you know what? I can overlook that. Let me forgive Shimmy. So the guy who was with Shimmy was named Ziba. And he also showed up with David or uh, when David is leaving Jerusalem. It, let me remind you, there's a bit of background just to get you, on the, get you up to speed. So Ziba worked for a guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Jonathan was David's best friend, Saul's grandson. He was crippled. And when, Dave, when Saul dies and when Jonathan dies, Mephibosheth runs away. He needs somebody to take care of him, and he finds somebody who's a long way away who will take care of him, somebody outside of Israel. At some point, David is... And I want to show kindness to anyone in Jonathan's family who's still alive. He's my best friend, and I want to do that. And somebody says, well, Mephibosheth, his crippled son, is still alive. He's living a long way away, this self-imposed exile. And David says, bring him to me. And Mephibosheth comes, and David says to him, I'm going to invite you to eat at my table, at the king's table, every day. Huge honor for Mephibosheth. And your Saul's estate, your granddad's estate... I'm going to give it back to you. Ziba has been running it, and he's been benefiting from it. He's been making money off of it. He's going to keep running it. You're going to make the money. And so that's how things have been. Then when David is leaving Jerusalem, Ziba shows up. He's got this long string of donkeys, and they've got all kinds of food on them. And he says to David, I know y'all didn't have time to pack any food, 
You're running for your life here. Let me provide for you. Here's food for all of these people who are with you, for your family, for your attendants, for these 3,000 soldiers. Here are donkeys for your women to ride. You've got a long way to go. And David, why isn't he here with you? And Zebra replies this way. He says, Mephibosheth is staying in Jerusalem. He thinks today the Israelites will restore him to his father's kingdom. So Zeba says to David, Mephibosheth, is, he's bailing on you. He sees an opportunity to be the king again, and so he stayed behind in Jerusalem. And so what David says in that moment, a rash decision, I think, the estate that I gave to Mephibosheth, I'm now giving to you, Zeba. It's yours. You can start making money off of that again. So now we've got several weeks, a couple of months later. David's coming back. So Zeba, impressive with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, he crosses the Jordan as well. He doesn't say anything, but it's a similar, I think, uh, posture that Shimmy's taken. I got to get there first. If you've ever been caught in a lie, you know how important it is to get your story out first. And I think that's what Zeba is doing. But this time, Mephibosheth shows up. Mephibosheth, Saul's grandson, also went down or trimmed his mustache or washed his clothes from the day the king left until the day he returned safely. When he came from, when he came from Jerusalem to meet the king, David asked him, Why didn't you go with me the first time, Mephibosheth? And Mephibosheth said, My lord the king, since I, your servant, am lame, I said I'll have my donkey saddle and will ride on it. So I can go with the king, but Ziba, my servant, betrayed me, and he has slandered your servant to my lord the king. My lord the king is like an angel of God, so do whatever you wish. All my grandfather's descendants, all Saul's descendants, deserve nothing but death from my lord the king. But you gave your servant a place among those who eat at your table, so what right do I have to, to make any more appeals to the king? The king Mephibosheth said to the king, let him take everything, now that my lord the king has returned home safely. So Mephibosheth shows up on this donkey, and he smells terrible because he hasn't washed his clothes in several weeks, maybe a couple of months. His mustache is all disheveled, and he hadn't taken care of his feet. Most people say that means he hadn't cut his toenails, which is nasty. So he's there looking like that. And looking like that is actually good for him. That reinforces his position. Zeba betrayed me. I'm a cripple. I couldn't keep up with you. I asked him to get me a donkey and he didn't do it. And then when he showed up with all of my stuff, with my donkey and my food, and he gave them to you, he, he, he lied about me. He said that I wanted to be the king. Do I look like someone who's trying to be a king? Anything about this say that I'm positioning myself to be a king. You can fake the smelly clothes. You can't fake the nasty toenails and the disheveled mustache. It takes time for those things to grow. So if Mephibosheth had been trying to be the king, and then he heard David lost, and he was trying to cover, he wouldn't have, like, all that stuff couldn't have happened. So the fact that his toenails are long and nasty and his mustache is long and unkempt, it supports that he's been in mourning, that he hasn't been trying to become the king again. And David sees that, and I think there's some congruity there. But for some reason, his response is not to say, man, I blew it. I was wrong. I jumped to conclusions when you didn't show up the first time. Ziba's super convincing. We really needed the help, and he was providing it. And so I gave him 
all of your land. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm giving it all back to you. That seems like the righteous thing to do to me. But that's not what he means. The two of you, and I don't get why. Unless he's thinking, well, Zeba did support me, and so I want to honor that. Or I, I, Honestly, I think he's going, I need as many people on my side as I can get because I don't know who's with me and who's against me. And so Zeba's got her with Shimmy, and they've got a thousand guys with them, and so I, I'm going to make, try to keep everybody happy. That's what I think David is doing. I think he's trying to keep everybody happy. And Mephibosheth is, says, he doesn't, I don't think he means it. It's the way you talk to the king is you do whatever you want. And David just splits the estate 50-50. So now the third encounter, a guy named Barzillai. We've seen him one other time. When David was in Mahanaim in that walled city, they didn't have any food. They'd all fled. They didn't have any way of taking care of themselves. And there were three guys who were extremely rich who took care of those 3,500 people, whatever it is, who took care of those 3,000 soldiers and David's family and David's servants. However, whatever that number is, they took care of them for as long as they were in the city out of their own pocket. And Barzillai was one of those guys. So Barzillai the Gileadite also came down from Rogalim to cross the Jordan with the king and to send him on his way from there. Now, Barzillai was very old, 80 years of age. Somebody out there told me 80 is the new 40. So if you're there, you don't have to hear that you're very old today. In Barzillai's time, that was very old. He had provided for the king during his stay in Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. The king said to Barzillai, cross over with me and stay with me in Jerusalem, and I'll provide for you. But Barzillai answered David, how many years will I live that I should go up to Jerusalem with the king? I'm 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between what's enjoyable and what's not? Can your servant taste what he eats and drinks? Can I still hear the voices of male and female singers? Why should your servant be an added burden to my lord, the king? Your servant will cross over the Jordan with the king for a short distance, but why should the king own town near the tomb of my father and mother? But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him cross over with my lord, the king. Do for him whatever you wish. And the king said, Kimham will cross over with me, and I will do for him whatever you wish, Barzillai, and anything you desire, Barzillai, from me. I will do for you. So you have this encounter between this guy who'd been loyal to David, taking a risk when David was outnumbered, didn't know if he was going to win or lose. He took care of him. And now he comes down to help just to see David across. It's a sign of honor and respect. And David says, you were really kind to me. Let me be kind to you. And Barzillai says, I'm, I'm too old. I don't want to move. I'm, I wouldn't be able to enjoy any of the stuff that you could provide for me anyway. I'm going to die soon. I'd rather just die in my hometown near where my father and mother are buried. But here's my son, Kimham. Why don't you take him? And everything that you were going to do for me, you do for him. And David says, absolutely, that's what I'll do. So all the people crossed the Jordan, and David crossed the Jordan. The king kissed Barzillai and bid him farewell, and Barzillai returned to his home. So Barzillai crosses the Jordan with David, and then he crosses back and goes home. Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to David, Why did our brothers, the men of Judah, steal the king away and bring him and his... And all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry? Have we eaten any of the king's provisions? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you. Why then do you need, excuse me? Why then do you treat us with contempt? Weren't we the first to speak of bringing the king back? 
But the men of Judah pressed their claim even more forcefully than the men of Israel. So David crosses, Barzillai goes back, and then some guys from Israel come up. And they say, why, did you, why didn't you wait? You've got all the troops from Judah. You've only got half of ours. They're coming from a greater distance. Why didn't you wait? And the guys from Judah say, cool it. What's the big deal? We didn't get anything for being loyal to David. He's related to us. That's why we went ahead and did this. And then the guys from the north say, there's more of us than there are of you. There's ten of our tribes. There's only two of yours. And it was our idea in the first place. We were the ones that said initially, let's bring David back. You guys were late to the party. And now you're stealing our thunder. And then we'll see next week that there's this tension between the north and they bicker. It actually leads to another rebellion that we'll see next week. So David is restored as the king. It's not great, though. There's not peace in the kingdom. It doesn't, it doesn't, it just seems weird. God's not mentioned in the chapter at all, which doesn't mean God's not active. He's not mentioned in the whole book of Esther, but his fingerprints are all over the activity there. But I don't really see that here. It's hard for me to look at something and say, oh, yeah, that was the Lord. He just didn't put his name on it. I see God active here. It's just anonymously. The chapter to me doesn't, I don't, I don't love it. But there is one thing during the, in this scene that I do really appreciate about David, and that he was the king. And it didn't matter that all of those guys, those troops, most of them had been fighting against him the week before. He had 3,000 troops who stuck with him. That's it. So most of these troops who are now fighting about who gets to be first to bring David back, who gets to show him the most honor. A week before, they were trying to kill him. And yet, to me, it shows the commitment that he has to remain king. Now, he held it loosely. He left Jerusalem. He didn't know, God, are you done with me? But when it became clear that God was not done with him, he said, I'm still the king. I'm not going to let go of that. Even though these people anointed my son, even though all of these troops went with my son, they were actively fighting against me, even though Shimei cursed me, I'm, I'm the king, and I'm going to hang on to that. You may be in a spot in your life now, if not, you will be, where some of the major decisions that you've made, you're wondering, do I need to, do I need to stick with these? I think where you work, or where you go to school if you're uh, school age. And I also think about your family situation, your family composition, those major decisions. You may put some other things in that bucket but David is facing, and he holds on to it and says, no, God has called me to be the king, and he didn't remove me, so I'm still going to be the king. So kind of in our terminology, we say on those major decisions, the light is red, you don't move until the light turns green. Jim Elliott, we've quoted him before, famous missionary to South America in the 50s, said, wherever you are, be all there. And to me, this idea in these major decisions of saying, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not moving. I'm not changing jobs. My family is set. I, I'm not changing those things. Those big decisions. I'm not transferring schools. Those types of decisions to say, the light's red. I'm here, and so I'm going to be all here. If God wants to move me, then he can move me. But that, that's, his, that's his thing. My thing is to be fully present in the life that God has called me to. We talk about 
finding your Marietta. That's one of our values as a church. And this is what we mean by that. That scripture, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7 that you see there on the screen, that is the scripture that that idea of finding your Marietta comes from. It says, God's planted you for some period of time in a particular life. And he has things for you to do there. When we talk about living like a missionary, it's the understanding that God has sent you somewhere. He sent you and he's planted you. And so you have responsibility to spiritually cultivate that area until he moves you somewhere else. He may never, but he may be, that's his deal. Your deal is as long as I'm here, I'm going to be fully present here. Read those verbs in that Jeremiah 29 passage. Build, plant, marry. Have children. Those are long-range verbs. Recognize that was written to the people of Israel while they were in exile. They were in timeout in a pagan nation in Babylon. And God said, and it's temporary. They know it's temporary. They're going to be there for seventy years. But God says, even during that time, you know it's temporary, and you know these people are wicked. But still, while you're there, I want you to be fully present in that place. And that's what I think the Lord would say to us. On those big areas of our life, those major decisions. We miss a lot of opportunities to be a blessing where God has planted us because we're looking at what's next. Because we're wondering about a better option. Instead of just focusing on where he has us. I want to encourage you if you're that the light is red. You don't need to spend a bunch of time asking God, do I need to stay here? Do I need to continue in this job or this career? Do I need to stay at this school? Assume that the answer is yes, unless or until God says move. And he is absolutely able to do that. Some people have burning bush type experiences, not a lot. If you have one of those and you don't need to hear anything from me, the bush is on fire and doesn't burn up and you hear God with your ears, you go, do it. Most of us, that's known green at times. And so how do you know? How do you know in these major areas of life that the light has gone from red to green, there's a few questions up there that you can ask. Fundamentally for me, I believe God gives us the desires of our heart. And so when your desires start to change, I would start asking myself a couple of questions. If your desires start to change, this isn't, I, I'm not, I'm kind of not feeling this anymore. The things that I enjoyed about this, I'm not enjoying anymore. This thing that I'd never thought about, that's starting to intrigue me. Again, whether that's a job, a career, a different school different place to live, would ask myself several questions. One, do I feel peace about moving? That's squishy and subjective, 100%. But God is the God of peace, and so do you feel peace? So being nervous is not, that's, that's okay. If it's, a, if it's a significant move, you very well may feel nervous, but that's different from feeling anxious. Those aren't the same things. And it's certainly different from feeling unsettled and convicted. So is there peace in your heart before the Lord? You start thinking details, you may get a little worked up. But when you're quiet before the Lord, as you pray about this, do you sense peace in your heart? Are your people affirming the decision? This is huge, and it's very un-American. We're independent, we make our own decisions. And to willingly submit a major life decision to other people is foreign. People who love God and love you, this is what I'm thinking what do you think? And I'm actually, I don't just want you to be my cheerleader. I want you to tell me, what do you really think? And not just to listen for yes, but to truly say, I'm taking your input as if it's from the Lord. That's a radical posture to take.
to put your own plans openly before other people and say, what do you think about this? That's not how most of us operate, particularly if the move is something that we want. All we're looking for is for people who are going to pat us on the back and say, go get them. The last thing we want is for somebody to put the brakes on and say, are you sure about that? We've been doing this for 10 or 11 years, and there have been, unfortunately, a handful of times where people who've been a part of this community have permission from me. I'm talking about their group, that group of people who they were committed to. And they've made those decisions without any input from those people, and most of them have not worked out well. And that's not a threat. That's just reality. God speaks to us, to the body, through the body. And if you've cut off that avenue of revelation and confirmation, then the chances go up that you're going to make a mistake, that you're going to move either in a way that God doesn't have or get the times put before the body, not the church, the three to five to seven people who love you and love God. I'm looking around. A lot of you are going to have seniors next year, and some of you are going to be seniors. And to think those decisions about college, you're going to put those, are you just going to hold those right here? Or is that something that you're willing to hold open? And say, what do you guys see in me? What do you see in my children? This is what they're trying to decide. What do you see? I want to allow y'all to, this group of people who you've walked with us, you've known us. What do you think? Those are, that's a, again, that's not an American thing to do. It's a kingdom thing to do. And the last thing I would say is do the circumstances line up? Do you see opportunities to make the move? Do you feel peace? Are your people affirming and confirming that decision? And do the circumstances line up that say, yes, this light is green? If all three of those things are lined up, then I would say it's a pretty good indication that the light has turned green. Again, that's all provided that the desires of your heart have changed as well. So I appreciate that about David. I love that he holds firm. What I don't love is the way he does it. Again, the chapter to me just feels kind of, yeah, I don't love it. It's. I feel like David is relying on his own strength and not the Lord is where it comes down to for me. I see him as a guy who's incredibly strategic. It's a gift God has given him the first time we see him in action. Him against Goliath, who's nine feet tall. And Saul gives him all this armor. He says, that's not going to work. I'm going to throw a rock at him from a long way away. I'm not going to try to go toe-to-toe with him. That's a strategic move. And as you see David throughout his life, he has that. He's a gifted leader. He's very strategically, uh, he's st- strategically minded, which is wonderful if you're leading a nation. I think what I see here is David leaning on the strategy and not leaning on the Lord. When he goes to Judah and he uses, he picks at their pride. That's what he pokes at. Are y'all sure you want to be last? You want to be last? I'm, I'm part of your family. You want to be last? It works. He wins all of their heart. End of the chapter. North and south are fighting with each other, and it leads to another rebellion we'll see next week. He accomplishes the short-term goal. The long-term consequences aren't great. He's using a gift that he has. I don't see him using it submitted to the Lord. You can disagree. I see the same thing in the way he treats Zeba and Mephibosheth. What I see is him strategically saying, I can, so, you know, it's what his son does, Solomon. I can cut the baby in half. I can do that. I can make both people happy at the same time. Okay, strategically, that works. You made both people happy. It doesn't feel righteous to me. He's rewarding Zeba, who he knows lied to him about Mephibosheth. He's rewarding him for that. He should get nothing, not half. 
So to me, you've got this, what I see is this gift that God has given to David being used by David apart from the Lord. He's not rebellious. He's not disobedient. I just see him saying, I'm the king. That's who God has called me to be. This is how I can see I can get from point A to point B. Here's how I get from Mahanaim back to Jerusalem. I can use this brilliant mind that God has given me. I can work the board. I know how to motivate people. I know how to move people. I know how to kind of get people on my team. And that's what I'm going to do. You have gifts. I'm not talking about spiritual gifts. I'm talking naturally. When God formed and knit you together in your mother's womb, there are certain things that he has enabled you to do better than most people. Everybody has gifts. You may not know what yours are, and that's an issue, and I would say you need to press into that a little bit. But everybody has at least one. You can outwork other people. You can outthink other people. You can outrelationship other people. You're super persuasive, and you can get people on your side. You're creative. There's something that you have that you do better than other people. That's a gift. When we're vulnerable, I think the temptation is to lean on our gifts versus the Lord. In periods of vulnerability, and I think David is vulnerable. I don't think David has a clue who's with him and who's not. And I think he knows he's the king and he's looking for the support of as many people as he can get on the team. And so whatever he's got to do to get their support, that's what he's doing. He's poking at pride. He's making a, an expeditious decision that's not necessarily a righteous one in order to get people with him. Even with Shimei, we can say, well, that's mercy. Or we can say, it's not, he wasn't being merciful. He was just saying, I, want to, I, I need you because you're an influencer in your nation. That's, we don't know that. What I see in David is someone who's leaning on this brilliant mind that he has versus leaning on the Lord. And I think we all, when we're vulnerable, when we feel exposed, there's a temptation to lean on our gifts as well apart from the Lord. It's hard to wait on the Lord. It's hard to trust in God who we can't see. These things that come easily to us, that are second nature to us, these things that have gotten us through Jam after jam after jam throughout our life, when we're in those periods of vulnerability, very easy to fall back into relying on them. I may not be the smartest guy in the room, but nobody's going to work harder than me. My bills are piling up. I need a raise. I'm great in the moment. I can persuade anybody. I sell ice to an Eskimo. And that's what I'm going to do. It's so easy. It's not even a conscious decision that we make. In those periods, again, we feel most at risk. Very easy to lean on our gifts apart from the Lord. So the, the, the solution is not to ditch your gifts, take those gifts to him. And that's just a posture that you take. It doesn't necessarily play out any differently in terms of your actions. It's the posture that you take on the front end. First is acknowledging the temptation. God, I recognize that in this situation, I can just kick my brain on and try to outthink everybody else. I'm going to outmaneuver everyone else. That's what I'm going to do. I can win most of the time. And so when I'm squeezed or when I'm in a position of vulnerability, that I'm going to, that's my default. And, I try, and I'm, I'm confessing to you. I'm acknowledging that temptation. And I'm thanking you for that gift, but God, I need to submit that gift to you. I don't want to use this strategic mind that I have or this 
gift of winning other people over that I have or this gift of connecting with people on a heart level that I have. I don't want to use those things apart from you. I want to submit them to you and pray that you would use them to accomplish your work in my life. And so I'm submitting them to you and I'm saying to you, I'm trusting you. I'm not trusting me. I'm trusting you. I'm not trusting the gifts that you've given me. It's just a posture shift. The, if, we're, if we don't do that in those moments, you wind up with this stuff like David has. It's like, yeah, you accomplished the goal. You're back in Jerusalem. Everything's a mess. The north and the south are fighting with each other, but you, you got back. And that's kind of how it plays out. There's some, we can, because these are areas where we're gifted, we can make some things happen. We can get some things done. But it doesn't, the, the long-term consequences, they're just not great. They're just not great. And we kind of, it creates more messes for us down the road. I want to take a couple of minutes and pray. John and Kate are going to come back up to the front. I want you just to think this morning, are you in one of those two situations? Would you say you're at a stoplight? And you're not sure if it's red or if it's green. You're not sure. Some of you who are about to be seniors, you may want to be thinking about this in terms of the decisions that are going to be in front of you over the next. You've got to decide by May 1st of 2019. So 11 months from now, and maybe for you on the front end of that, before you even get deep into the process of vetting schools you want before the lord want to say you got to direct me i know what i want but i need you to direct me bring people into my life who know me well who can help me navigate the process parents of seniors you may want to do the same thing you may be at a different stoplight it may be something with your career you may be considering a move i don't mean moving from one house to the next in the same neighborhood I'm thinking about a move that changes your community. That small move doesn't change your community. But moving across town does. That's a big move, even though you're maybe even in the same zip code. If it changes a missionary in the same place anymore. So God, is that, is that okay? I don't know if the light's red or if it's green. So maybe it's not, God, can I move from this job to this job in this organization? That may not change your day-to-day in terms of where you're a missionary. Maybe it's a change from one company to the next, though. Or something else that you consider a major decision. Would you this morning just allow the Lord to speak to you? Most likely, if he was going to do the burning bush thing, you'd have already gotten it. And so I would encourage you to ask him about the, what color the light is. Allow the people who are here for ministry to pray with you and for you. They're not going to give you advice and they're certainly not going to give you direction. They're just going to pray for God to speak and for you to have ears to hear what he's saying. They're going to pray that the desires of your heart would align with the peace of God, would align with those who love you with their input, would align with the circumstances that you'd know. There may be some of you who are in situations this morning where you know you're tempted to lean on your own strength. If not, you're, you're actively doing it. 
things that you're good at. And when you're crunched, that's what you lean on. You don't lean on the Lord. You lean on your strengths. And I would encourage you, if that's you this morning, to acknowledge that before the Lord. To confess, to repent, to ask God to thank God for your strengths and ask God to use your strengths as he will. Confess your tendency to use them. If you want prayer for him, we'd be happy to stand with you about that. But I'd say those two major things, we would love to pray with you. And again, especially if you're standing at that stoplight and you're not sure what color the light is. We want to pray that you would leave here with a greater sense of peace and clarity. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you speak to us, our students and our adults? I do pray for those who are facing a major decision in life. And I pray that you would lead them and guide them through that major decision. That you would let them know what color the light is so that they can move forward confidently and faithfully. God, we're thankful for all the gifts that you've given us. And we want to submit all of those gifts to you. All of those strengths to you. We want to to use them in the spirit, not in our flesh. So we sing the mark on that. You guys can stand up. The ministry teams will come forward. Y'all can respond as you will, and John and Kate will just.